Hello, I'm Brian Hubbard. And I'm Lynn McTaggart. And we are What Doctors Don't Tell You. And it's another multimedia extravaganza of podcasts, vlogcasts and Facebook Live. Hello, Hi, Facebook. Facebook Live. Um, so for the Facebook Livers and everyone else, we're, our first item is, well, actually, the first item reminds me of that old saying, which is the path to hell is paved by good intention. You think um, these are good intentions? Right? Well, well, absolutely. And um, it goes to the heart of modern medicine because um, it's clearly it's a good intention to prescribe drugs to people because they're supposed to work. And um, it is also supposed to keep the hospitals less busy because people are taking the drugs. And it occurred to someone in the UK back in 2004 that if we actually incentivize doctors to prescribe more drugs we'd have fewer people going to hospital and all the rest of it. But the, um, and they are very well incentivized. Uh, the average doctor in the UK earns an extra £17,000 a year, $21,000. And it's an incentive scheme that actually runs around the world. It's not all the same, of course, but every health system in the world carries out a similar sort of incentive to encourage doctors to prescribe more drugs so that it takes the strain off hospitals. And that sounds perfectly reasonable. So anyway, it finally occurred to some researchers uh, 17 years or so later to actually say, well, is this actually making a difference? And so they did an analysis of the most common drugs that are prescribed for chronic conditions such as heart disease, high blood pressure, stroke, diabetes and kidney disease, and found that in fact the drugs made no difference at all. <laughs> um, the people were just as ill as people who weren't taking the drugs, and indeed they were going to hospital as frequently as people who weren't taking the drugs. But of course the doctors were still getting their money every year. So these drugs were doing absolutely nothing for the major chronic diseases we suffer in the West. You know, what I think is so terrible is this kind of financial and the, the uh, monetization of medicine. Mm. I think that's what's really concerning me because um, we are, you know, incentivizing doctors to do lots of things, mm. whether this is, um, this is uh, um, vaccination or any kind of drug taking, mm. um, doctors are getting money the more they prescribe. Now, of course, the only one who really benefits from this is the pharmaceutical industry. And it really concerns me that the pharmaceutical industry and its you know, financial gain have essentially hijacked medicine. Mm. And this is a perfect example of it. You know, what doctor wouldn't want to make a little extra for his holiday? Sure. But it's absolutely the wrong way around. And it's... You know, in the UK, where we live, I mean, they do the same with mm. um, with uh, uh, vaccination. People are, and children are given vaccines, um, and the doctor has to have a certain quota in order to get his bonus. So he hustles everybody mm. to get vaccinated. Yeah. You know, and I think there's something really fundamentally wrong with that. And it goes back to that point we often raise, is, is the difference between acute and chronic disease where mm. acute is the one where you're likely to die any minute <clears throat> such as from a heart attack or 
road accident or whatever it might be, which represents something like 8 to 9% of all disease. And the rest is made up of chronic conditions, which can be heart disease that isn't fatal, cancers, diabetes, osteoarthritis, psoriasis, you name it. Virtually every condition is actually chronic. And this study demonstrates that the drugs don't do anything for them. And yet, you know, we continue to um, splash out all this money on chronic care on a system that doesn't work. And there are so many other things that are non-drug based that are working and they don't even get a look in. I know. And this is where this is where we come in. I mean, this is why we do this magazine every month. Uh, this is our September issue, and we can give you a little preview of our October issue. But what we find is, you know, with things like this, um, better solutions for things like hearing loss. Medicine can't do anything about that. Medi ways to regrow cartilage to end hip replacements, knee replacements. You know, you name it. If there's a condition out there, there's an alternative treatment that works and has evidence for it. Mm. And that's what we keep looking for. Mm. Mm. And other than emergency medicine, we've got to give conventional medicine its place as the place for the acute issue. You know, it's brilliant if you need a cesarean. It's brilliant if you get run over by a truck. It's brilliant if you get a heart attack. But for all of those other chronic diseases, we need systems that look at the body more holistically, and mm. that's what alternative medicine does. Mm. And just on a final note, it's worth adding that um, what the researchers didn't take into account was the adverse effects, side effects of these drugs that were also escalating other health problems and were actually more likely to lead to a hospital visit. And, of course, that wasn't taken to, into account when they were measuring this performance. So, and Yes, and remember, when people do get side effects, nobody puts two and two together no. and says it's the drug that they're taking, so they yeah. give them other drugs. Mm. And so you get this whole complicated interaction mm. and multiplied side effect mm. situation going on. Mm. So there we are, the path to hell. All right, bye Facebook livers and we'll carry on with our podcast. Bye. bye. Okay, cell phones, mobile phones, as we call them here in the UK, rather quaintly. Um, perfectly safe. Don't cause any problems whatsoever, says study after study, funded by the mobile phone industry. Fancy that. Mm. Well, however... When some researchers took a look at the effects on teenagers and their growing, maturing brains, they have come up with quite a different conclusion. And that um, even after just one year's use, uh, the researchers have discovered that the performance of the kids in the schools has been dramatically affected. Memory problems, learning difficulties, all seem to increase dramatically following intensive use of a cell phone and um, it seems to affect the right hand side of the brain amongst right-handed people so there does seem to be a correlation there between phone use and and learning problems um, so what they actually did was quite an interesting study they there's a group of 700 adolescents aged between 12 and 17 years and i think this also just as an aside is concerning because of the vulnerability of the growing brain, which does seem to be 
more affected by mobile cell phones. But anyway, they took a look at 700 adolescents and measured their memory performance before and after cell phone usage and found a dramatic difference. And it, although the kids are, of course, um, you know, in an environment all the time of RF, EMF, radio frequency, electromagnetic field, radiation, it seemed to be the cell phone most of all that seemed to have the direct effect. So in other words, Wi-Fi was, is very prevalent in lots of schools, but it didn't seem to have the same effect. I mean, the one bit of good news is that most kids, of course, don't ever use a mobile phone to make a call with. They, they're always using them almost as a, as a pad to play games on and all the rest. So for these people, they weren't affected. It was the people who put the phone directly to their heads whose learning uh, problems cropped up. You know, this is a really interesting study, Brian, because mm. <clears throat> just in our papers recently, they, they had a study saying, oh, we shouldn't worry about kids. We're worrying about the fact that they don't have, they can't retain information, that they have short attention spans now because mm. of all of these devices and their own you know, mobile phones, et cetera, and cell phones. But, um, and they said, well, actually, they aren't affected. You know, there isn't a problem with um, short attention span. This is now suggesting the reverse. Mm. They probably didn't look at cell phone use. And I think that's, they may have looked at it with computers or games or things like that, but they didn't actually look at the devices themselves and measure time spent with the thing next to their head yeah. and what that does to you. And, you know, people have consistently tried to, who are in the industry, have consistently tried to uh, downplay any effects of mobile phones. But you really have to ask yourself the question, you know, why is there this gigantic rise in gliomas and other brain tumors that just weren't around before in any kind of, you know, mass amount? But there's been a huge increase in that, very fast-growing brain cancers and lots of other things. And we really have to take this seriously, particularly for young people. And I, Well, yes, and in countries like France already do because they, they ban cell phone use in, in young kids. They seem to get that it's the growing brain that is especially affected mm. by this. And other countries like the US and the UK, for example, could do well to catch up with that. Well, and also they're creating a culture. I mean, I think the other interesting thing, aside from the brain stuff, is what's going on with the culture as a result. Mm. You know, there are studies that are really shocking about what constant cell phone use and device use are doing to children's self-esteem. You know, there is an, um, an extraordinary ballooning of, of, um, of plastic surgery on young teenagers, teenagers and young adults. And also there's a ballooning of anorexia, believe it or not, among men and young boys and boys and teenage boys. And this is all about how do I look on this, this whole thing mm. of not having a private life anymore and putting, having mm. to put everything on your, on your phone, everything about your life, everything about your stuff on your social media, and that breeding a lot of self-esteem problems. Mm. So there's a lot of issues really attached to mobile phone use, cell phone use that we really have to address. And certainly the health one is a serious thing. Mm. And so if you're 
a young person or you, you, your parents uh, could do this as well. Just just don't use a cell phone for calls. Don't use a cell phone for calls and try to limit what you do at certain times of the day. You know, I mean, we had one of our kids' schools actually took the phones away from the kids during the day. Mm. And that actually was a really good thing. Mm. Okay. What makes curry yellow? Turmeric. Turmeric. And do you know what the magic ingredient in turmeric is? Curcumin. Well done, Lynn. Top of the class. Yeah, curcumin is proving to be an amazing ingredient. It's already been shown to help with uh, uh, dealing with mental diseases such as Alzheimer's and even some cancers. It's an anti-inflammatory. And so it could be used for things like heart disease and arthritis. And now, clever people at Imperial College London have actually added it to some eye drops and found that it's even reversing glaucoma, one of the most common eye problems in the West and affects people as they get older. And um, not only does it seem to stabilise the problem amongst people who um, have the disease, um, you know, it's clearly something that could be used as a preventative as you get older. Maybe an eye drop or two a day could do that. And they're suggesting that it could even be reversing the condition in some cases. Because, extraordinary piece of research, because medicine really has absolutely no answers to glaucoma. They just see it as a deteriorating condition, and that's it. It's just put down to old age, and there's nothing much they can do for you. So this is an extraordinary piece of breakthrough research, and um, one that I think they're very keen to pursue further. But um, I'm not quite sure, without the eye drops, how you do this. I must say, you can't really sort of drop curry into your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's hope that the alternative practitioners and manufacturers get wind of this study and then start manufacturing this. It wouldn't be difficult to create little alternative eye drops and to have them sold in the health food store. They've mm. got plenty of eye drops that are sold there with, you know, with uh, easy and simple ingredients. And this is just another example that there's a simple and natural solution to just about everything. And here you've got this amazing anti-inflammatory, and that's probably what's going on with glaucoma because mm. there is swelling yeah. um, with the eye, yeah. um, that can reverse it and reverse in in inflammation all over the body. So this is definitely some, you know, we put this challenge out to you, alternative um, manufacturers. Let's come up with an eye drop and stop mm. glaucoma in yeah. its tracks. And, and it's, uh, I think, one of the last vestiges of despair in terms of takeaway food and home delivery was a thing called curry in a hurry. And believe it or not, this is exactly what this is, because they're finding that um, this is working within three weeks. So a curry in a hurry that is reversing glaucoma. Absolutely. I mean, this is, you know, this is why people in India have a very low incidence of arthritis because they're eating curries all the time. There you go. There you go. Curry in a hurry. Yeah. Okay. Why do doctors keep on prescribing opioids when there's an epidemic going on? Uh, don't, don't even suggest the answer because it's beyond your belief. Because what's happening is the minds of our doctors are being controlled. Woo! <laughs> 
<laughs> but on a more serious note, they sort of are. Because what's yes. happening is that um, the experts from behavioural science are actually putting prompts into software that doctors are using whilst you know discussing problems with the patient. And every so often, a little pop-up appears which says, oh, have you tried this drug? Or don't you think you should increase the dose for this person? And they're known as nudges. And um, they did a, a, a sort of research on this and found that doctors whose um, computer systems, uh, you know, they use computer systems for their patients who have nudges are actually tripling the rate of drugs that they're prescribing to patients. And these nudges are coming from the pharmaceutical industry, presumably. It's not my place to say. But I mean, they, they if they're getting information about the patients or certain drugs, I yeah. assume they're getting it from the pharmaceutical industry. Well, possibly, but um, it certainly is something that is um, worrying. That that in fact that well, of course, the the, the pharmaceutical industry or the doctors don't see it as worrying, mm. but it, it is worrying when you look at a number of drugs which are being overprescribed not least of which is the opioids, which is causing mass epidemic around the world and distress amongst communities, uh, high death rates, suicide rate, you name it. But um, if the doctor isn't thinking on his feet and he's just going with these nudges, he's prescribing more. And mm. I think that's a matter of some considerable concern. Well, they, um, the researchers had a look at a, a small group, 96 doctors, um, who were caring for about 5,000 patients, and um, all these patients were eligible for statins, which is medical speak for they pass every single measure, which means they should be taking uh, statins because of cholesterol levels, um, but who weren't taking them. So the doctors whose computer systems were uh, supplied with nudges um, actually prescribe 117 patients with statins compared to just 40 doctors who weren't nudged. So it's nearly triple the amount that these nudges are achieving. And, you know, it's a small and subtle way that medicine is moving and transforming to, to prescribe more drugs. I mean, this is really scary. Um, I don't know if you remember that movie, The Manchurian Candidate. Oh, yeah, Frank Sinatra. You know, where yeah. the candidate is basically mind-controlled. Yeah to uh, commit, I think he's, he's supposed to commit a murder or something like yeah, that. and, he and an he's, assassin. He's an assassin. Yeah. And not suggesting doctors are assassins, but no. the whole thing is their minds are being taken over mm. in these subtle, behavioral, computerized ways. And they're probably not even sure where these nudges are coming from. But mm. in order to be seen to be prescribing cor correctly, they're listening to it. And so their prescribing habits are being taken over by organizations that stand to gain by the maximum number of prescriptions. Mm. I'm pretty scared about this. Mm. And as you say, what's really terrible, which most insidious and just amoral about this, is the idea that opioids are, you know, their use is absolutely out of control, particularly in America, but also in the UK and elsewhere in Europe. Mm. And, you know, people are dying from this stuff. Tens, hundreds of thousands of people's lives are getting destroyed by this. Mm. So this is just shocking and should be outlawed.
Okay, well, eagle-eared listeners will have heard about a wonder ingredient just a moment ago, which was the curcumin. Well, here's another one. Medical cannabis, CBD, pronounced <laughs> cannabidial, cannabial. Cannab- cannabidial. Cannabidial. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Um, cannabidial, I think. Okay. Well, let's just say mm-hmm. CBD amongst friends, shall That's we? That's it. See, this is the um, therapeutic ingredient in cannabis, not the bit that gets you high. And it's been used um, in recent years as a painkiller, but it sort of became something on the sort of center stage just a few years back when it treated a young girl called Charlotte who suffered from Dravet syndrome, which is a rare form of epilepsy. And poor Charlotte was suffering 300 uh, grand mal episodes a week. And uh, her parents were at their wits' end. And they saw on the websites about this thing called CBD and a bit concerned about giving their daughter of five cannabis. But, of course, as I say, it's not the, um, it's not the high part of it. It's just it is the therapeutic aspect of it. And it comes from the hemp plant too, of course. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, they, they gave this to Charlotte, and um, within a very short time, her uh, episodes had decreased, and she now suffers none. And um, the CBD became known as Charlotte's, uh, Charlotte's oil and all sorts of things. Um, but it's, since then, it's been studied rather more, and it's been found to have all sorts of incredible therapeutic benefits from helping to speed up the healing of fractures, pain control, inflammation, Crohn's disease, Alzheimer's and epilepsy, which is, of course was Charlotte's case. But now there's a new study just come out that not just that, it also is a cancer fighter. And it's particularly good for people who are having chemo because it, like, so it supercharges chemo. Quite how it will work on its own without the chemo, I don't know. But this is an ex- another extraordinary thing. And the, the researchers from Queen Mary University in London are very excited about this and believe they actually said it could be used in cancer clinics almost immediately. They're so blown away by the success of this. And before I pass over to you, it's quite interesting. There's a biological reason why CBD works. And it's to do with the receptors in our body. It's almost as if they've been pre-programmed for CBD, and they have kind of cannabidiol receptors within us. Cannabidiol. Cannabidiol, which, um, which really are making this very effective. So, I think, you know, what do you think, Lynn? Well, I, you know, there's been such a stigma around um, marijuana hmm. um, as just a, you know, a substance to get high on, that it's really good that these isolated parts of it and of course, it's not just part of marijuana. It's not just part of cannabis. It's mm. also um, in hemp plants, and that's where mm. they get a lot of this stuff from. Okay. Um, and you know why it's legal in a lot of countries or mm. states where marijuana itself is not legal, mm. uh, as long as it doesn't have THC. Right. Um, but if it has CBD, mm-hmm. then it's okay. Yeah. But you know. The idea that these researchers actually tried it out on cancer is just so encouraging Mm. because the conventional treatments for cancer really don't work very well. Mm. And if you have something that mitigates against their terrible side effects Mm. like chemo and also supercharges them to actually work better, that's exciting. 
What I'd really like to see is how does this stuff work on its own? Because mm. it is a wonder. It's a wonder substance for all of those other things you talk yeah. about from epilepsy to, I mean, it's doing amazing things for people with pain, mm. for arthritis. You know, it's a brilliant anti-inflammatory yeah. and it's simple. You just need to put a little bit of this mm. under your tongue. Then it bypasses your gut mm -hmm. and just gets right into your system. Mm. And it's legal, guys. There you go. Thanks, Lynn. They said it was impossible. They said it couldn't happen. They said it's not true. You know what? It is. Spiritual healing actually works. A major study was carried out on patients who had both IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, and IBD, inflammatory bowel disease, and found it had quite remarkable effects on people. And what's quite interesting is that a number of those people who, who had spiritual healing were extremely sceptical about it and didn't believe for a minute it was going to make any difference. But you know what? It did. And um, hats off, really, to uh, a woman called Sandy Edwards, who put this whole study together. She's a spiritual healer herself, and she actually went and crowdsourced the £205,000 necessary to carry out this study. And she got it from the, I think, oh, actually she got it from the National Lottery in the end. But anyway, she did it all off her own bat. It was a, the biggest ever study into spiritual healing involving 200 hospital patients who had five weekly healing sessions or were just put on a waiting list. So they were essentially the controls. And those who had the spiritual healing had clinically significant improvements. And, um, and these carried on even up to 19 weeks after the sessions had stopped. Now, this is, this is I suppose, part of your world as well, in your other world, isn't it, really, with intention? and Yeah, and I think this is what's so exciting about it, is mm. people just have had a hard time thinking mm. that if somebody has a thought and sends it to someone else that that can actually make them better. Mm. Because that completely undermines everything we think about how the world works mm. in a stroke. Mm. Um, but we are now finding more and more that we have these non-local connections, as scientists call them, that we don't just end with our bodies, but our thoughts have the ability to be trespassers and mm. go out there and change other things and, and other people. Mm. And what's so interesting and significant about this study, it's not the first on spiritual healing. Mm. There are about 150 studies mm. of spiritual healing, and even the arch-skeptic Edvard Ernst had to admit in one of his, his books or his articles that spiritual healing had some evidence of success, not something he likes to admit on any front. Mm. Um, but there are some decent studies about it. This one <laughs> seems to be the largest, mm. but it joins a great deal of evidence, scientific evidence produced in credible, prestigious laboratories at major universities showing that our thoughts can change things and thought and change other people and that thoughts can heal. Now, what's really interesting is a lot of the evidence I've seen before shows that belief plays a part. You know, if you believe and the spiritual healer both believe it's going mm. to work, it will enhance your, your success rate. But here we showed something that really definitively knocks into touch the idea that this could be a placebo effect. Mm. The people, even the people who were skeptic, 
still had effects. Mm. And I certainly see that in my power of eight work, the work where I do healing intention circles. Even the people who are skeptics, we had a young guy who tried to commit suicide and we had groups sending intention for him, healing intention for him. And he got out of the hospital in record time. Mm. We know it wasn't a placebo effect because he was a teenager. And like most 15-year-olds, he thought his parents' belief in the power of intention was pretty stupid. Yeah. No, it is extraordinary stuff, Lynn. And I think it sort of demonstrates how little we do know. But the only thing we know is we know more than doctors. But anyway, we'll let that one go. Um, So that's about it for this week. I'm Brian Hubbard. Thank you again for listening or watching. I'm Lynn McTaggart. Just pick up this magazine in your local stores and uh, your health food shops and Whole Foods and Barnes and Noble in the UK and all the major supermarkets and health health stores. Or you can get it delivered straight to your door. So until next time, we look forward to speaking with you again. Bye-bye. Bye.